0: Since we are having communion this morning, we don't have our hymn of preparation. Uh, So let me encourage you now and invite you to join me in taking your copy of God's Word. And turning with me back to the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah, and we're going to end up our look at chapter 1 this morning by looking at the last verse, verse 11. We have spent the past few weeks in and chapter one of this book, and so this morning, like I said, we're going to end up by looking at this last verse as a preparation for a sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Really, what we have done in some large part in chapter one is, is come to a knowledge of who Nehemiah is. So I want to think about it for a moment. What have we learned about Nehemiah so far? We don't know a lot about his personal background. We know, he, we know who his father was. But we know he was a faithful Jew who had been living in exile for all of his life. By the time uh, this narrative, this story takes place, it had been some hundred plus years since uh, the Israelites had been exiled. Nehemiah would have been too young to have ever known Jerusalem as home. So he's a faithful Jew who has lived in exile for all of his life. And the story picks up for us in that he receives some visitors and they tell him the bad news about how bad of a condition not only Jerusalem is in, but the walls surrounding Jerusalem. And we're given this insight into the faithfulness of Nehemiah. As we said before, we, we, we go further into the state, we'll see it. Nehemiah is a man of action. He's a man who likes to get things done. But it always starts with prayer. And we've seen that here with him. He hears about uh, the bad condition Jerusalem, the wall. It breaks his heart. So he devotes himself to prayer. A faithful Jew living in exile who is faithfully praying. That's what we know about Jeremiah. Or sorry, about Nehemiah. And as we looked last week at the, the, the content of Nehemiah's prayer, we realize it's not just one prayer. It's, it's a collective representation of what he prayed. And Nehemiah didn't focus all this prayer on the wall. It wasn't, dear God, the wall's in horrible condition. You need to do something about it. Let's get the job done. Amen and move on. No, it was a prayer, a model prayer, where there was a focus on the adoration of God. He doesn't go straight to asking. He adores God. He's moved by such faith that he spends time adoring God And then he's moved to confess his sins. His sins and the sins of his people. And then he takes time to thank God for who God is and how God works. Then he comes and he asks for God's help. So it's a model prayer for God's people as we go in prayer before him. And that brings us to the last verse of this chapter this morning. So let me pray for us and we'll go before God's word together. So let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we come to the last verse. of chapter one, we come to what's really a few brief words, but we believe these words are your truth, and we can learn something from these few words. Pray that you would bless us in this time. May Christ be exalted in how your word is read, how it is explained, how it is heard, and how we live it out. May it all be for your glory. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Nehemiah chapter 1, the end of verse 11. We'll stand together now for the reading of God's word. and we won't be standing long because it just tells us, Now I was cut bare to the king. Grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to go back with me just a few weeks, if you can remember, to our first sermon on the book of Nehemiah. It's really an introductory sermon, and we spent a few moments talking about Nehemiah's position as cupbearer to the king. So we come back to it this morning because we only spent a few moments in it, but I believe there's something more we can learn about this position of Nehemiah as cupbearer to the king. Now, in our Time and culture, that position doesn't really, really sound like much to us. There's really no, in a sense, equivalent to that in our day and time. But for Nehemiah's time and for that culture, being the cupbearer to the king was an extremely important post because his life was on the line every time he did it. He put his life on the line for the life of the king. What Nehemiah did every day, his main responsibility, is he would have the first drink from the king's cup and first bite from the king's food. Why? To ensure the safety of the king. Remember, this is some 2,500 years ago. There were no drones. There were no guided missiles. There were no snipers. One of the best ways you could get to uh, kill a person such as a king as you would recruit somebody to get as close to the king as possible and sprinkle enough poison in his food and drink to kill the king and anyone else who would eat of the poisoned food or drink. So Nehemiah's job would uh, would be for him to always have the first drink and the first bite to make sure it wasn't poisoned. How would you like to wake up every day knowing that was your job? Because you wake up every day thinking, well, today could be my last day on earth. Who wants to kill the king today? Maybe they're going to poison him. But that means that the office of cupbearer was a particularly honorable one. It was usually given to those who had unquestionable loyalty and trustworthiness. And this made sense, right? Because the king's life was in his hands. The king had to trust him Trust him enough for his own life. Trust him enough for the life of his family as well. I want you to stop and think is there anybody in your life you trust enough to put your life in their hands like that and the life of your family in their hands like that? That was Nehemiah's job. His party inner circle. That it may be that he would advise the king on some issues as well. So we find that Nehemiah is a person who has this uh, high and trusted position to the king. But there's something rather amazing to this position, and that is uh, Nehemiah wasn't one of them. Nehemiah wasn't Babylonian. He wasn't one of those people. Nehemiah was a Jew. He was a foreigner. He was an alien. He was of a people who at one time were an enemy of this kingdom. Nehemiah is living in exile. He's not one of them. He's not blood. He's not kin. He wasn't a brother or a cousin. <clears throat> Nehemiah was different. He looked different. His accent may have sounded a little bit different. Maybe he had some different mannerisms. Worshipped a different God. But yet, he lived in such a way. Conducted his life in such a way that he was so trusted by the king that every day the king woke up and looked at Nehemiah and said, I put my life in your hands. I put the life of my wife and my children in your hands. Even though you were once an enemy and you are now living in exile. And when we look at the story of Nehemiah, we we boil it down, this happened because of Nehemiah's faith. We're introduced to Nehemiah's faith before we're introduced to his position. You realize that? And so the idea here is Nehemiah made his way to be a cupbearer to the king because he so faithfully lived out the faith that he had been taught all of his life. Even though he's not Israel, even though he's not Jerusalem, even though he's not in the temple, his parents have raised him in such a way he has responded in faith and he lives out his faith to where he has now gained this high level of trust To the king and had uh, had uncommon access to the king, and we will see this come into play as we continue our study of Nehemiah. But this is his position. This is what it means for him to be cupbearer to the king. And what I want to suggest to us this morning is that from this brief verse, now I was cupbearer to the king. Not only do we learn about Nehemiah's position, we see some resemblance of our position with God. Because as Christians, we know that through Jesus Christ, we are now sons and daughters of God. That's one of the great privileges of the gospel. One of the great privileges of the gospel is how we just prayed. Our Father who art in heaven. Not dear far off God, not some God set far off. Let me pray to you at the other end of the cosmos. No, we are able to pray to God as our father. Why? Because through faith, Jesus is now our elder brother and the spirit now resides in us as our teacher and comforter reminding us that we are children of God. That's one of the great blessings of the gospel. That through faith in Christ, all of us in here who are Christians have this privileged position with God the one who created all things, the one who sustains all things, the one who stretched out the horizons, the one who calls out stars by their names, we have this privileged position that we are now His beloved children. That we have been adopted into the family of God. That is our position this morning. But here's the wonderful news about our position. It's that this wasn't always our position, was it? Because of our sin, at one time. We were aliens to God. We were strangers to God. He's the holy God and we mired. We were mired and wallowed in our unholiness. Ephesians 2.12 reminds us that we were alienated. We were apart from God and we have no hope because our sin separates us from God. Because of the sin that was committed in the garden, we have now been set apart from God. Strangers, Aliens. But Paul, when he talks to the Roman church, says, not only were you strangers and aliens, you were enemies of God. Not passively enemies, but actively enemies. That before faith in Christ, we were actively set against God as our enemy. Understand that and that's part of the destruction of sins, is that it produces us in us such a hatred of God and of his will. We look at the world around us and we see how much the world hates God. And at one time, we were one of them. We may not have been so bold as some of these other people, but in our hearts, we hated them. We refused to love them. We refused to follow him. We refused to be obedient to him. We were his enemy. And that was our position. Strangers, aliens, enemies, no hope. Actively wanting to see God's destruction so we could wallow in our sins guilt-free. So what happened? How do you go from wanting to see God killed to calling him Abba Father? How do you go from being set apart from him to now being a child and disciple of his? How is it as our, our position as Christians that we are now children of living God, disciples of Christ, eternal co-heirs with the Son? That, how, how is it our position has changed now where we have access to the throne of grace? That the king and king will always hear us and listen to us when we come to him no matter the time of day. And that's another one of those great benefits of the gospel. If you wake up at 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, you can pray. And guess what? God hears you. I don't know if you have many friends that you can call at 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning and say, hey, what's going on? No matter the time of day, you can go to God in prayer. How does our position changed where the gates of heaven are not shut against us, but rather are flung wide open and we have access to the throne of grace? Our prayers at any time. And when Jesus calls us home to Him, we will find those gates are wide open, welcoming us to our eternal inheritance of love and God. What has produced such a radical change in our position? Well, the answer is right in front of you it's Jesus Christ. His body broken, His blood spilt. What happened? Jesus happened. His perfect birth happened. His perfect life happened. His perfect sacrifice happened. His perfect death happened. That's the reason for our changed position. It's all because of Jesus, because of who he is and what he has done. And this is where we start to differ from Nehemiah and his position. Nehemiah had to work his way, he had to earn his way to be trusted and loved by the king. Every day, Nehemiah had to prove himself worthy. Every day, we do everything we can to prove ourselves unworthy to be our kings. We do everything we can to prove ourselves rebellious, enemy, rebellious enemies and sinners. But it's because of the gracious love of God in Christ that we are now adopted and brought into the fold, not because of what we have done, but because of everything that Jesus Christ has done for us. Why he was born in a manger, why he was born under law, why he perfectly obeyed the law of God, why he had loving obedience to the will of God. There is never not one ever single sin. And all that to lead what we remember this morning At this sacred table. Jesus on the cross. His body broken. His body broken for you. Jesus on the cross. His blood spilt. His blood spilt for you. Body broken. Blood spilt. So that through faith. And who Jesus is. And what he has done for you. You are no longer a stranger to God. You are no longer an enemy of God. You are now a child of the living God in whom the Spirit of God lives and enables you to know the Father in the most loving, familial way, to know the Son as your elder brother who loves you and guides you. That is our changed position because of what this table points us to. Nothing I have done, the body of Jesus broken, his blood spilt. This is why we are a privileged people. Now, I never would have imagined that the word privilege would become a bad word or a hot topic issue, but it has become one. But the privilege of this table isn't defined by race. It's not defined by money. It's not defined by by familial status or power. It's a privilege that is defined by God and conferred by God alone. It's not a privilege we earn. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. That's the blessing of the gospel. It's not about what you have done. It's about everything Jesus Christ has done so that we are now a privileged people. So now we can know that we are a child of God through Christ. And we have, again, we have His Spirit living within us, enabling us in mind and heart to know that God is our perfectly heavenly Father who with all the deathless love that means. We are a privileged people. But it's a privilege that comes at a great cost. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Why are you able to be here this morning? Because Jesus Christ died for you. Why are you able to pray to the Father? Because Jesus Christ died for you. Why can you have the surety of eternity? Because Jesus Christ died for you. His perfect life, perfect obedience, His perfect suffering, His perfect sacrifice, His perfect death, His perfect resurrection, His perfect ascension, all the cost for our privilege. Your daddy cannot buy you into heaven. Your family tree cannot be so deeply rooted in Winsboro that the gates of heaven are going to fling wide open for you. You cannot earn enough respect in Fairfield County where God is eager for you to come in because of how many people you know, and it only takes a phone call or two to get a favor done. It's not about you. It comes at the cost of Jesus Christ. And so we come to this table, we are reminded of the cost of love. God doesn't just send us a Valentine's Day card. We don't just have balloons tied around our mailbox. For God so loved you that He gave His only begotten Son. That's the cost of our privileged position. And it reminds us that we have a responsibility with this position. Our faith in Christ isn't a passive faith, meaning that we just receive and receive. We're not just takers, we are givers. It's an acting faith. It's a living faith. Our wise spiritual forefathers used to speak about it as an acting faith. Meaning that we exercise faith. We take hold of God's promises. We fix our gaze on Christ and all he is. So we come to this table as those who profess belief in Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done for us then we are spiritually nourished so we can continue to have this act in faith, to, uh, to exercise our faith, to take hold of God's promises, to fix our faith, our gaze on Christ and all he is. That's why Paul tells us we are work out our, our salvation with fear and trembling. Not that we can ever lose our salvation, but because of salvation, we live in, in reverence of God and living out by his will and his obedience. Nehemiah had a responsibility with his position. Esther had a responsibility with her position. The Apostle John had a responsibility with his position. Paul had a responsibility with his position. We have a responsibility with our position. That's so why we're told in Luke 12, Everyone to whom much has been given, of much will be required. And how much has been given to you? The very body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so we are called to be ambassadors of the gospel. We are called to go out as those who feast upon this table so we can share the wonders of the gospel with the world. Does that mean we're all called to be pastors? No. Missionaries? No. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Absolutely. Love your neighbor as yourself? Absolutely. Be ambassadors to the world? Absolutely. We have a responsibility with our position, and we grow in that responsibility as we come rightly to this table this morning. So, on behalf of Christ, I invite you to think about your position with God, the price paid for that position, and the responsibility of that position as we come as privileged people to the sacred table and the privilege of the gospel. Join me as we pray.